Good morning, church. It is good to be with you. And as Anna shared just a moment ago, uh, about eight days from now, we will be on a plane to Indonesia. And we feel extremely loved by you as a church through your prayers and your partnership. And I could spend the rest of my time expounding on that, but that is not what I'm here to do. Thank you, though, for your faithful prayers. We are seeing the gospel go forward. And God's work will do the work it was intended to do. So don't lose heart. You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Who do you eat with? And for all of you grammarians out there who just cringed that I ended a sentence with a preposition, with whom do you eat? Meals are a very significant part of of every culture, and as we come back from living three years overseas, people often ask, you know, what is it that you miss most about America? And without fail, I say, (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I'm only partially joking with that, but for me, it's Thanksgiving. Uh, The meal together, the the ambiance, the people, the weather, everything about it, there's just something about that time together. As a family, we love to, to go Christmas caroling, and so usually the Friday after Thanksgiving, we'll go to seven or eight houses, sing some carols, uh, pass out some cookies that Sarah and the, the kids have made, wish them a Merry Christmas, and then within five minutes, we are on our way to the next house. Our first time doing this in Indonesia, we go to the first house, we sang, we gave cookies, and we tried to leave. And we learned in Indonesia, you do not do that. Three hours later, we were leaving that house. Because in Indonesia, if you bring food, you are going to enjoy it with them right then. Every culture has their unique traditions, their special meanings that surround the the table. Think about your meals. And not just in your dining room or your kitchen, but where you spend those hours of your life at a table. With whom do you eat? And what does your eating company demonstrate about eschatology? Let's look together at Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 together. Please have your Bibles opened or you can also see it on the screen. Revelation chapter 19 verse 6. John is writing, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So in Revelation chapter 19, John is giving us a glimpse of the final 
culmination of our salvation. We can only appreciate the beauty of what is written here if we understand it in light of what had to happen to bring us here. Back in the garden, our original friendship with God at creation was broken by the fall, and we became God's enemies. The wisdom, the grace of God planned to make our nature once more like his and to do it in such a way that any future separation between us and him would become impossible. So the the whole scope of Scripture is tracing that process of reconnection. And so we come to this final chapter in the story, the book of Revelation, and the climax in Revelation 5 and 7 where the Lamb is positioned forever as this centerpiece. The nations, people from every tribe and tongue are gathered around him in pure worship We move along through this book in an anticipation of Satan's final judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Here in Revelation chapter 19, we have the consummation of our union with Christ. We, the church, once an enemy, now a bride, are being now made ready for that wedding day. We have a pure by Christ's righteousness, and Christ is our bridegroom. And at the center of this wedding is a feast, a meal, a marriage supper. That God chooses to highlight our union with him in a meal is no surprise. All throughout Christ's ministry, we find him gathering at a table, and it's as if he is saying in those three and a half years of ministry, the, the people that I call to eat with me, the, the variegated, multi-ethnic, socially, politically, financially diverse, this is a foreshadowing of the beautiful diversity of that marriage supper. The extent of my grace knows no limits. There's room for more. Today we're finishing a brief three-part series on missions, the word being proclaimed to the nations, those who have never heard. And as that word is received and responded to in faith, we send out others, missionaries, to take the gospel so that others can know, so that they can come together in an assembly, an ecclesia, a local church. Today we're looking at the completion, the end of the story the end goal when all of the nations are gathered together, the marriage supper. I wonder when was the last time you thought about that marriage supper and what that supper means for you now and how you structure your life. The angel says in Revelation 19, 9, look with me there again, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's three things we're going to see in this verse. There's an invitation, an entrance, and a host. An invitation, an entrance, and a host. Let's look first at the invitation. The angel says, blessed are those who are invited. Now, who did Jesus invite to eat with him? Who did he spend time with around a table? Maybe as you think of that question, the first grouping of people that pops into your mind are the sinners. Luke chapter 15 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In that context, eating was a way to show connection, to show relationship. There was no such thing as fast food. It was a long relational process. And so the Pharisees look at Jesus eating with sinners, and they say, why is he relating to people like this in this way? That label sinner is very pejorative. You know, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The inference is that those who are using this label about others did not see themselves as sinners also. Jesus made it a point to eat with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, with Matthew the tax collector in Matthew 9, to allow the woman of the city to anoint him while he was eating in Luke chapter 7. And this was not just happenstance. These were deliberate choices to invite those who many would have considered outside the reach of God's goodness. As Anna shared a moment ago, our family typically lives in Indonesia, but because of health issues with two of our children, we temporarily relocated to Singapore during COVID. And one day, I had found this co-working space to go out and try to get some work done, and as I go in, I meet this young 25-year-old Singaporean who was a regular there. His name was Ian. We struck up a conversation. And one of the first things he told me was that he was gay. And as I'm standing there having this conversation with him, it dawned on me, Jesus would have eaten with Ian. And so I did, many times. Jesus loves people like Ian. But it's not just the sinners that Jesus connected with. He also invited the outcasts. And these were not the moral outsiders. These were more the socially outcast, the sick, the disabled, the undervalued. This was infectious people. Jesus ate with Simon the leper in Matthew chapter 26. Disabled people, John chapter 9. There's there's no accounting that he ate with this man, but a whole day of his time was invested in this person who everyone else thought had received this sickness because of some sin he or his parents had done. There's the social and the ethnic outcast in the woman at the well. When my daughter Zoe was about seven years old, uh, we were... At church, I believe here, one Sunday, and we go to Wendy's uh, out on Wadehampton Boulevard just after church. And outside of Wendy's was a lady uh, with pink pants on, and she was asking for, for money. And, you know, at that point in the day, if I can be honest, I was like, you know, how do I get three kids into Wendy's, get home, and still remain sane as a father and a parent? So I just kind of go in and start ordering food. And as I look back, I look and see at the table that this lady is now sitting with Zoe. And as I find out what happened, turns out that Zoe had seen this lady, run up to her and said, you have on pink pants. I have on pink pants. We're friends. Let's eat together. (laughs) It turns out that this lady was struggling with story. Uh, We ate with her. We shared our story and our hope in Jesus. And it turns out just the next table over was a man who was the head of a drug addictions program. He had heard everything, came over, and this lady was ready to get help. Now, I had to be forced 
into that connection by the, the simplicity, the innocence of my daughter. And sometimes we have to be forced into eating with and engaging those around us who are the sinners or the outcast. But these are the types of people that Jesus sought out. These were the ones that he wanted at his table. But it's not just the sinners, it's not just the outcasts, it's also the righteous. Or maybe we should say the self-righteous. Jesus ate with Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, with another Pharisee in Luke 11, the chief of the Pharisees in Luke 14. And so we begin to see that Jesus was indiscriminate with his invitations. If you hold your finger here in Revelation, turn over to Luke 7 with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 7. There's this beautiful irony. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him. They are reclining there, eating together. And look at verse 37 of Luke chapter 7. Luke says, and behold. Luke wants us to to really take notice of who it is that is coming in. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She hears that Jesus is is eating there at the house of the Pharisee. She takes this bottle of ointment. She comes to Jesus' feet, and with this ointment mixed with her tears, uh, ostensibly tears of repentance, she washes his feet, and she kisses his feet. Now, the Pharisee doesn't say anything. He is he's too socially adept, too spiritually aware to say anything and make a public confrontation, but listen to what is in his heart. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And that's the point. Jesus did know. And that's precisely why he allowed her to be there, why he connected with her, because Jesus came not to call those who think that they are righteous, but to those who know that they are sinners. There's a dear Indonesian friend of mine, Riyamalaya fisherman named Pak Ujang. Pak Ujang fits in two of these categories. He is an Islamic teacher. He guides 100 kids every day in how to read the Quran. So he would be in that self-righteous category, yet he is deeply animistic. He has been unfaithful to his wife. And so, you know, we could put, them, put him in that, that sinner category. As I sat with him just a few weeks ago, it hit me again. Jesus would have sat here. Jesus would not have been overwhelmed by the lostness of this man any more than he would be overwhelmed with my lostness. I am not more worthy to have been invited to the table than this uneducated, animistic Muslim fisherman. Me and my self-righteousness, Pak Ujang in his sin, it is precisely to people like him and, and me that Jesus says, come, eat with me. And if we have slipped into this mindset that the, the sinners are out there and not here? That certain types of people shouldn't be invited or, you know, what's the use? They're probably not going to respond anyway. We need to revisualize the world through Jesus' eyes. We are all sinners. We are all lost 
And that's good news because that's the type of people that Jesus came to save. Sinners, outcasts, self-righteous. Jesus was indiscriminate with his invitations, his connections. And so regardless of political party or gender identity, racial background, Jesus found great joy in connecting with sinners of every stripe. And he connected with a purpose, and that purpose was to call people to himself. When people met with Jesus, they never left the same. They either left more confirmed in their their self-righteous lostness or their sin, or they left completely changed by the gospel. Jesus was intentional to engage these types of people, the sinners like you and me. He was indiscriminate. He was deliberate in his ultra-inclusive invitation because everyone is a sinner. Everyone is lost. The problem is, not all of us are willing to admit that. And here's where we see the entrance. Look again at Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. The angel says, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed, happy, rejoicing, delighted are the ones who not only receive the invitation, but actually come. And so if Jesus was indiscriminate with his invitation, the question is, who actually gets in? Turn back with me now to Luke chapter 15. I read these verses to you a moment ago, but I want you to see them with your own eyes now. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Who actually gets in? Verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So this is the context, and in response to this, Jesus then tells three parables. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And in that last parable, there are two sons, one who seemed to do everything wrong, and one who seemed to do everything right. And so this younger son, in his sinfulness, In his lostness, look at verse 17. What does it say? It says, he came to his senses. He realized, I truly am a sinner. I am lost. So what does he do in response to that revelation? Verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he he goes. He goes back to his father. The father... He sees him from a distance. He feels compassion for him. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He forgives him. He restores him. Look at verse 24. He says, my son was lost. He was lost and he was willing to admit it. He was lost, but now he's found. The older son, he he hears this celebration. He hears this feast, this foreshadowing of the marriage supper, and he goes out of the house angry. The father goes out, look at verse 28. He says, he invites him, come, he entreats him deliberately, passionately. 
And what does he say to the father? He says, look at what I've done. Look, these many years I have served you, verse 29, and I've never disobeyed your command. Effectively, he's saying, I deserve to be in there. But this son of yours, look at what he has done. He does not deserve to be in there. There's something in the older son that still lives in many of us. We still believe that our seat at the table is one in part due to our relative goodness. This leads us to condescend, to judge, to distance ourselves, to stay put when we should be going. Several years ago, we were sharing at a church about the gospel advancing among Muslims, and a man sincerely asked, can Muslims really be saved? There's this underlying belief that I am more worthy I am less far gone. That God's grace is less effective for a Muslim, an Indonesian animist, a gender-diverse Singaporean, a trailer trash upstater. See, the father goes out to both. And at the end of the story here in Luke 15, who is inside the house at the meal? It's the younger son. And the older son He's still outside. If you look through Scripture, the woes that Jesus gives are almost exclusively to the ultra-religious crowd because they think that they deserve to be at the table because of what they've done. In this story, it ends, verse 32, as a cliffhanger. Does he come in? Does he not? It's not that he is not able to come in. He can. In his pride, he is choosing to stand outside and not come in. But, but will he? Will he say, I too am a sinner. I am in need of grace just as much as this, my brother. And the point here is that entrance is not based on what you have done. It's based on how you come. If you come to the Father and say, I've never disobeyed your command. Look at what I've done. Look at my baptism certificate, my giving record. Fill in the blank. Look at this. He will say, I never knew you. But if you come to your senses, verse 17, if you are like the sinner in Luke 18 who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then he looks at you and he says, welcome, welcome to the table I've prepared for you. I shared a couple of weeks ago briefly about our teammate Aman and these two brothers, Kamar and Abdullah. Both of these men are Riyamalai fishermen that our teammate Aman met just a couple of years ago. Uh, Aman met them, asked to eat with them. They spent hours together, and very quickly Aman realized that Pakamar had no interest in spiritual things. Uh, he'd much rather talk about things of this world. So Aman has faithfully gone back to him over and over, sharing stories with him from Scripture. But meanwhile, Abdullah, Kamar's brother, was sitting with them in some of those initial connections, listening to everything that Aman said. And at first, Abdullah was, was reticent. He was slightly combative, uh, nervous. As soon as Aman would bring up any type of spiritual conversation, he would, he would try to switch the subject or um, respond negatively. But Aman noticed something about him, that there was this hint of desire, a, a longing. And so Aman kept 
meeting with him, kept eating with him, kept planning the word of God in those conversations. And over time, something changed. Amon began having longer spiritual conversations, sharing one verse and then two verses, sharing longer stories that connected with Abdullah's heart. It's now been over 18 months since those first meetings began. And now Amon and Abdullah are meeting one to two times a week. And each time they meet, they're reading through one chapter of a gospel together. They began reading through Luke at the beginning of this year. And after they got through Luke chapter 7, remember, this is a a Riyamalayu Muslim who has never read the Bible before. They get through Luke chapter 7, and Abdullah says, this is a secret. He's talking about the word of God. This is a secret that has been revealed. The roots of history are in this book and have been hidden all this time. We, meaning Muslims, are forbidden to find out the story of the previous prophets. I wonder why we are forbidden to find out. Why is it covered? I want to know the history more deeply. They're now at John chapter 7. And recently their conversation turned towards heaven. And Amman explained that the people who enter heaven are those whose names are recorded in the book of life. And Abdullah looked at Amman and he said, is my name listed there? And I love Amman's response because he didn't say yes or no because Amman doesn't know what's in his heart. Amman said this, your name will be recorded in the book of life when you believe in Jesus, according to John six forty seven. The condition is easy to believe in Jesus and obey his word. Amman looked at Abdullah then and he said, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that what is written is true? And Abdullah didn't answer right away. It took a long time considering the implications of his answer. And he looked at Amman and he said, I believe what's written here. He didn't give an answer about Jesus. Abdullah is so close to the kingdom. He is so close to being one of those that will sit with me and you at the table. And sometimes we base our invitations on who we think may or may not come. There is nothing about Abdullah that we in our finite understanding would say makes him a probable candidate for gospel reception. And oh, how foolish we are. We don't know who will enter and who will not. Why did you respond in faith? I love the hymn text. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It's God's mercy. We don't know who will look to their own righteousness, their love for the world, or who will come to their senses. And so we should be indiscriminate with our invitations, our connections, all the while trusting that the word of God that we plan in their hearts, conversation after conversation after conversation, that that word will do the work that it was intended to do. When we hear a story like this with Abdullah, who is so close, we say, yes, we want people from every tribe and every type to be at the table, invited and accepted. But when it comes home, you're not missionaries. You're not specially sent out with the gospel to the unreached, to the nations. You're called to be faithful witnesses of Christ here in the upstate. So when it comes home to your daily routines, your daily choices, 
what is it that disconnects you from the sinners or the self-righteous and the lost? What What prevents you from inviting others to your table so that they have an opportunity to sit at the table? I think there's several possible disconnects. One is fear. Uh, Fear of a negative influence on our families or our kids. When we were in Singapore just a couple of months ago, riding a bus down the road and turned this corner, and there's this massive billboard. Uh, I think it was for a sports car. There was this guy dressed to the hilt. And the tagline, all it said was, your own personal universe. And we fear the things that would disrupt our universe. You know, if we have somebody like that into our home, you know, what is going to be the impact on our children? I think a more compelling question is, what will be the impact on our kids if we don't connect with others as Jesus did? Will our kids grow up thinking that the gospel is for one particular race or type of person or political party or socioeconomic status because that's all they ever see us interacting with. Another disconnect is rejection. We just simply don't want people to say no to us. You know, we're uncertain of certain uh, cultural or social norms that are outside of our frame of reference, and so rather than be vulnerable, we just, you know, avoid. Another disconnect is disgust. In the sense of their, their sin, which may be disgusting, or just in the sense of how they keep themselves, you know, maybe physically or hygienically. Think back to the words of the older brother in Luke 15. He refers to him as this son of yours. You ever take time to think about the tone of voice? That loathing sound. Like, I don't want to be touched by this. There's a missionary in the early 1900s, Thomas Kelly. And he was describing the difference between just nominal faith and religion and fully committed faith. Listen to what he says. There's something wholly different from mild conventional religion, which with respectable skirts held back by dainty fingers, anxiously tries to fish the world out of the mud hole of its own selfishness. You know, I I want to love people, but... I don't want to get too soiled by it. Friends, aren't you glad that Jesus dove into our sinfulness for us? He didn't hold back his skirts with dainty fingers. He loved us where we were. Another disconnect is distraction. The story in Luke 14, the invitation to the banquet, and people say, well, I've bought a field. I have five yoke of oxen. I have married a wife. I have a miniseries I'm watching. Fill in the blank. There's always a reason not to connect. Another disconnect is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding of where true value lies. True value does not lie in someone's contribution to society. Their value comes from who made them. One of my sons has Down syndrome, and God has used him so much to teach me how I have wrongly viewed others. Uh, To interact with my son, you have to slow down and not be in a hurry. You have to wade through a lot of uh, confusing and at times alarming behavioral patterns. 
To spend time with those who are differently abled, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes a belief that value and contribution does not come from affluence or competence, but it comes from the image of God being placed in their lives. Sometimes we place such a a high value on uh, efficiency and productivity and professionalism, talking with influencers and, and high prospects to the extent that talking with someone with an intellectual disability seems spiritually and practically inefficient. And what a misunderstanding of who God is and who he invites. They have the same image of God in them that you and I have. Another disconnect is judgment. Yes, what they are doing is wrong. It's sin. And be clear, friends, Jesus did not wink at sins. He did not explain it away culturally. He was very clear about what they needed to do with their sin. If we're up here on the judge's bench and they're down here, we're distancing ourselves from them. We're preventing that life-on-life interaction where they can taste and see and feel the love of Jesus that has changed our lives. So rather than stand on that judge's bench, why don't we come down to the mourner's bench beside them? in prayer, in concern to be the hands and the feet of Christ that do invite them to the table to find healing, restoration, forgiveness, a welcome, a home. There's one final disconnect, and that is indifference. And to me, this is the most frightening. In the Indonesian language, the word for unreached people group is suku terabaikan which literally means a people ignored. There's a difference between forgetting and ignoring. If you leave church today, get a couple miles down the road, and you look in your rearview mirror, kind of in the back seat, and you remember suddenly, God gifted me with four kids, yet there's only three in the car, you would be forgiven. (laughs) You'd come back. But it'd be a very different story if you knew your kid was here. You said, doesn't matter. And you leave. If you ignore it, you know it's there. But you choose not to engage. I think all of us know that the table is open for all. That there should be this ultra-inclusive invitation to all types of people. We know that there is room for more. And we know more or less that these disconnects are immature and frail. And I get it. Sometimes it's just the stress of it all. I have four young kids. One who has significant developmental needs. And having conversations with others. Inviting people into our homes and lives. Whether it's here or in Indonesia, with real Malay Muslims, it is stressful and exhausting. Uh, my kid is going to scream. He's going to be misunderstood. My parenting is going to be judged. All while I'm have, trying to have this nice conversation with you. But rather than avoid, we need to be okay to invite people into our Jesus-filled chaos. So what do we do? What is it that's going to change you so that you are indiscriminate with your invitations here? That you joyfully, creatively, deliberately invite others into the warp and woof of your life so that with hope, with prayer, they will respond to this invitation from Christ. If you make adjustments out of guilt, 
you're going to be crushed. You'll make minimal progress, but in the end, guilt is just about how I feel about myself. Where do I fit on this welcoming scale as compared to you know, somebody else? The only way you're going to experience lasting change, whether that's going to your neighbor or going to the nations, the only way that you're going to experience lasting change is when you think long and hard about who invited you. And here is where we see the host. Look again at our text in Revelation chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of all the titles that he could have used, marriage supper of the king, marriage supper of the deliverer, the warrior, the creator, the most high God, what led him to choose this title? Marriage supper of the lamb. Charles Spurgeon writes, I gather just this, that Christ anywhere, even in his highest glory, still wishes us to regard him as a sacrifice sin. There are people all over the world that view Jesus as a great teacher, a prophet, an exemplar. They they sift through his teachings and try to adapt them uh, to fit their worldview. On our island in Indonesia, there is a a road name that always fascinates me, Jalan Raja Isa, which literally means King Jesus Road. And before you think, oh wow, you know, they must be believers. No, the Muslims that we engage on a, on a daily basis, they highly revere Jesus as a wise teacher, great prophet. He was sinless. He was virgin born. He's even going to be the one to come back and judge the world. Their conception of Jesus is revered. But in their worldview, he didn't die on the cross. He's not the son of God. He is not a sacrifice for sin. He is not the lamb. Most Asian contexts, actually most contexts context around the world, there is a dominant public religion. So in Indonesia, uh, the predominant religion is Islam. In Cambodia, it's Buddhism. But underneath both of those lies a deep-rooted animism, a, a belief that spirits control everything, both good and bad. And so your typical animist, whether that is a Muslim animist from the Riau or a Buddhist animist from northern Cambodia, they'll say, sure want your Jesus. Let me add him to my array of other spirits and other gods that protect me. And that is why we are so careful with Abdullah and with others that they see Jesus not just as an addition to make their life a little bit better. He is the one true way. He is the perfect final replacement. So there are many people who view Jesus as a teacher, a prophet, an exemplar. But when you view Jesus as the lamb, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My sin. I am a sinner. I am the lost. Whether that's the sin of the harlot and the adulterer, the sin of the the rule keeper, I need what this lamb has to offer. And this lamb does not just offer me a better life through his teachings. He offers me from death to life by his blood. How does he do that? How does he take away the sin? Jesus, the lamb of God, he, he became a man. He came to you, he invited you to his table, and he looks across at you, 
He looks across at you in your sin and he says, repent and believe the gospel. He looks across at you in your self-righteousness and he says, will you allow yourself to be lost so that you can be found? He looks across at you in your defiant rejection and he says, your sin on me, my blood on you. You are welcome at my table. Only believe. So we, we lost, we sinners, we self-righteous in response to this invitation, what do we do? If you are the sinner, you arise and you go to your father and you say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And you feel his embrace. If you are the self-righteous, you lay down all of your, I have always obeyed. You say, nothing in my hands I bring. And you feel his embrace. It's this lamb that says, come, eat with me, whoever you may be, believe in me. Find your home, your safety, your forgiveness, your rest in me. And friends, to the degree we understand what qualifies us to be at this table, that we are the lost, we are the sinners, that we could do nothing of ourselves to merit entrance to this feast, that we were no more easier to save. To the degree we understand what this host did to welcome us to himself, we will actively, joyfully, inconveniently, deliberately, vulnerably, creatively, riskily pursue all others, all nations to fill in every seat. When you gaze long and hard upon this lamb, when you think deeply about what he did to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, then your tables, your lives, your schedules, your interactions are going to be filled with all these types of people because that's who Jesus invited. Now, this impacts every one of your lives here because there is a deep recognition of the grace that was needed to save you, a deep appreciation of the extent of God's love for you. And that recognition, that appreciation, it compels you to share with all types of people. Friends, there is a direct connection between what is happening at your meals, your homes, your connections, and who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What would happen if if each one of you here at Heritage was dubbed a friend of this and this? And I'll leave it blank because the challenge is different for each one of us. Are you okay with feeling uncomfortable with what you see and what you hear, being vulnerable as you make a social faux pas and have to humbly admit your, your insufficiency? When your eyes are fixed on The lamb, you're not going to have a problem with that. And as we continue to gaze at the lamb, we see his resolute commitment, yes, for our neighbors, but also for the nations, the unreached. There are some who are sent out from a local gathering of believers, as Trent highlighted last week, sent ones, missionaries. There is a cross-cultural, language bridge, unreached people group aspect to this designation, that calling. And friends, I can tell you from experience, it is gut-wrenching. It is joy-filled. Some of you are familiar with uh, David Hasfluk, missionary to Albanians for about 30 years. One time he was asked 
How do you communicate to people the, the paradox of that gut-wrenching, joy-filled aspect of missions? Listen to what he said. It's easy to feel the tingly sensations of missionary surrender by listening to a well-crafted, musically powerful missionary DVD in a climate-controlled auditorium and then hearing an impassioned sermon. But turn off the AC when you preach the sermon. Pump in the smells of body odor, and strange food, and cigarette smoke. Blast some insipid Balkan or tribal music in the background. Talk about depression, and loneliness, and pain, and smog, and threats, and fears, and danger, and discomfort, and frustration about theological grammar. Talk about there being ten demises that rip your heart out for every Timothy that is faithful. Talk about pouring out blood, sweat, and tears, and seeing the harvest come in slower than you thought it would. Talk about missionary kids struggling to adjust and forever becoming third culture people, neither being culturally American nor Timbuktuan. Missionary sacrifice is overwhelming. This isn't in the fine print. It's plastered all over the New Testament, but we missionaries fail to present this side because we don't want to sound like we're bellyaching. War is hell. But he goes on. But never forget the incredible reward of doing all this for Christ's sake. Talk up the joy that was set before Christ at the cross. Talk up eternal treasure. Mention the party thrown over the one in a hundred rescued from destruction. Overshadow the immense difficulties of missionary sacrifice by the overwhelming rewards in eternity. Make them jealous for God's glory and tell them how incredibly amazing it is to see God turn on the spiritual light in a pagan's heart. Let them imagine how tear-jerkingly awesome it is to hear a sinner calling upon the name of the Lord after being convicted by the Holy Spirit through someone as unworthy as them. And even in the absence of such conversions on a large scale, let them know that there is great fulfillment in knowing that amidst the pagan sounds and oppressive darkness, you have been sent as a light. Lit by the light. Though no one come, though no one heed, you are there. And you know you are there. And he knows you are there. And he is there with you. Always. Until it's all over and you go to your final sleep saying, I left it out there on the field and it was all worth it. When you make Jesus the lamb, the object of your gaze, and health, home and family, your, your grip on those things begins to loosen. And it's not because you don't care about those things. You cry and you weep and you grieve like anyone else. But the lamb, you look at him and say, worthy, worthy is the lamb. I have been invited. I have been accepted. Thank you, Jesus. Blessed are those who are invited to his marriage supper. Let's pray together. Father, all of our hearts, all of our songs join to admire this feast, and each of us cry with thankful hearts, Lord, why are we guests? Why were we made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? 
pity the nations who are God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. God, we long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. We pray this in the beautiful name of the Lamb. Amen.